Welcome to History Notes, a podcast from the Greensboro History Museum, where we are making history by talking history. History Notes is created by the Education Department of the Greensboro History Museum, located at 130 Summit Avenue, Greensboro. History Notes intends to provide instructional resources for our area educators and content for all learners both in and out of the classroom. From K-12 to graduate-level students, teachers, administrators, and the overall community, History Notes is for you. Let's examine the individuals, trends, and events that have helped shape who we are today. And don't forget to take notes. It's now time for History Notes. Welcome to History Notes, the show made with education in mind, produced by the Education Department of the Greensboro History Museum. We look for ways to inform, raise awareness, and supplement lesson plans for educators in the K-12 arena, institutions of higher learning, or it could be a Sunday school class or a house gathering. I'm Rodney Dawson, Curator of Education at the Greensboro History Museum, and today we are in collaboration with One City, One Book Initiative of the Greensboro Public Library. Special thanks to the Adult Programming Director at the library, Beth Sheffield, uh, for making this uh, possible today. Uh, today's podcast specifically uh, will discuss the work of author Osha Gray Davidson, particularly the work Best of Enemies, Race and Redemption in the New South. Many of you may recognize the book or watch the movie inspired by the book, holding the same name. The movie starred Taraji P. Henson and Sam Rockwell, as well as Babu Cisse. Yes. All right. I'm hoping I get the name right. And today, as you heard, we're pleased to have Mr. Uh, Davidson joining us for History Notes. Thank you for joining us today. It's an honor to be here, Rodney. Thank you. And I know it was some effort for you to get here. You know, by the time they listen to this, it won't be today. But <laughs> uh, you, you overcame quite a few challenges. It was just crazy weather travel, the usual. And you're flying in from Phoenix, Arizona. That's right. Uh, got delayed in Charlotte and uh, still didn't get in until this morning, about what, less than an hour ago and still found the energy to come for history notes. Oh so we my appreciate gosh, you. this is why I'm here. Well, thank you very much. And I'm going to start with this. I'm going to quiz you right quick, okay? Okay. All right, if I say the names after Paul Rudd, actress Zoe Saldana, uh, Lisa Will, Loretta Swit, who played Major Margaret uh, Houlihan in MASH, Joe Piscopo from Saturday Night Live, and uh, my favorite sports uh, analyst Dick Vitale, and author Osha Gray Davidson, what do they all have, all have in common? We're all from New Jersey. All right, right. You're all from New Jersey (laughs) (laughs) and the same hometown. I didn't realize that. Oh, okay. Because we moved when I was six years old. Okay. Gotcha. Well, when I looked up your hometown, it starts with a P. Tell me the name of your hometown again. Oh, it's Morristown. All right. No, that's not what the internet told me. Uh, It probably says Passaic. Passaic. That's what it says. I think the hospital was then in Passaic. Okay. So, yeah. All right. Well, that's you were destined to have uh, books turned into movies with all these actors and actresses <laughs> coming from there. Must be. OK. And uh, again, thank you for joining us. And before we start, uh, we've done some research um, and all I kept seeing was environmental, environmental. Uh, some of the books, some of the uh, articles that you've written, uh, particularly for Rolling Stones. Uh, but a lot of, you're very environmentally conscious uh, as well as politically sensitive. And I'm thinking of your works, Broken Heartland and uh, Under Fire. Uh, and then the uh, Rolling Stones article you did on Lorianne Pistawa? Paestua. Paestua. Um, so from where does this derive? Where does this come from? These are all, uh, Beth and I were talking about this on the way over today, that the the upside of being a freelancer is doing what um, really moves you. Issues, writing about issues that, that you're passionate about. So 
my uh, my passions apparently run the gamut, and each time it's been a subject, uh, a broad subject, or a very narrow one that I just felt like this is what I want to write on, and then finding a publisher or editor in a magazine that agrees. Okay. Well, you know, you're here tonight to talk about uh, one work in particular, Best of Enemies, uh, the, as I just said earlier, the, the book that was turned into a movie. So can you, in a brief one or two minutes, give us a little small summarization of the book? Sure. It's really, it works at a couple of different levels, but the, the most obvious level is it's a story of race and class set in Durham. It's nonfiction, and it's about a friendship a very unlikely friendship that developed between Ann Atwater, a black community organizer in Durham, and C.P. Ellis, who was the head of the Klan at that time in the 60s and 70s in Durham. Okay. And clearly, it wouldn't appear that they have much in common. But in fact, what they had in common was a lack of power. And uh, C.P. didn't realize that he was doing the bidding of the wealthy whites in Durham. He thought he was just one of them. Okay. And so he bought into this myth of race in America of, you know, for him, as no matter how poor he was, he always knew that he, he in the social hierarchy, that he was better off and better, he felt, than a black person. So is that why you laid out the history of Durham Absolutely. in the beginning? Okay. Absolutely. Because without the context, it doesn't mm-hmm. really mean anything. And that's what I meant by that there's a couple of levels. Mm-hmm. There's that surface level of their friendship. But really what interested me was how, not how did they get to be friends, but how did they get to be enemies? How, mm-hmm. how was he convinced that he was superior? What, what's this whole thing about? So... It was just a fascinating and important topic. And unfortunately, it's only gotten more important as time has gone on. Okay. So in the movie, in the book, you know, everyone highlights Anne Atwater. In the movie, she's played by Taraji P. Henson. And then uh, C.P. Ellis is portrayed by Samuel Rockwell. What other key or notable figures uh, in Durham at that time uh, the light is not shown as brightly on that you could talk about? Boy, that's a hard one because... I really focused on what what people sometimes call the little people, which is real people living everyday lives, mm-hmm. uh, not the the power brokers behind the scenes. Um, so, it, I mean, there there were movement people like Floyd McKissick, who was a civil rights organizer, mm-hmm. and he was one of the most important people, and he was he was organizing a. a, a a sit-in uh, program, trying to organize it, in a, <laughs> trying to do this in an organized way when the four students from A&T right. went here to Woolworths mm-hmm. and, and started and Floyd. You see my hat, don't you? Yes, I, I do. do. All right. Yes, I do. <laughs> I'm wearing an A&T hat. <laughs> I'm a proud alum. Okay. And after we're done here, I'm going to go over to the museum okay, at great. Woolworths. I've never been there before. Um but I did interview um, Jabril Kazan, mm-hmm. who is one of the four students, and he was telling me about Floyd McKissick and okay. how he'd know. I had no, you know, he swore, well, we had no idea that he, they were organizing this. And I also interviewed um, Floyd McKissick's daughter, Joycelyn McKissick, okay. who unfortunately has also passed now. 
Now, these sit-ins that you're talking about, uh, these were sit-ins that he was uh, organizing in Durham. Yes, in Durham. And they were planning a nationwide rollout, but um, they this was not coordinated okay. the, the four students here this was that was a you know something that well i don't need to tell you, right. but I hope to learn more about it today when I go over to the museum, but according to Jabril, no this was like let's go do this that's mm-hmm. all. Right. Well, that's uh, very interesting. Now, the relationship between Ann Atwater and CPL is uh, you interviewed them. Oh, yeah. Um, you get did you get to know them fairly well? I think so. Yeah. Over a period of a couple of years. OK. And so I would like to ask the personal encounters that you had uh, with Ann Atwater and CPL is um, what are some of the. Uh, were you pleased or displeased with how that relationship portrayed on camera in the movie? How their relationship right. was portrayed? Mm-hmm. I was very pleased. Okay. I think Robin Bissell, the screenwriter director, did a great job of showing, and the actors themselves did a great job of portraying who these people were at their core. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I think is really hard to get. Right. But these were the people I knew um, who I met. And and NCP, it, seeing them on the screen was eerie. Oh, okay. So they 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 uh, did bring it out. They did, and and how they interacted with each mm-hmm. other, they brought out. Where at the very beginning, I mean, it, they didn't mention this in the movie, I don't think, but Anne and CP had each tried to kill each other at one point, at two different times, mm-hmm. um, and um, then they became these really close friends i mean i i've had people who thought that well there must there must have been a romantic relationship but there wasn't Mm -hmm. between them it was a spiritual thing um where they cp i mean she was the one Anne was the one who led cp into the light who destroyed this myth of racial superiority of white superiority Mm -hmm. and helped him start over from scratch where he had to make a whole new world for himself where he did he just everything he knew was right. gone and it was because of her and that kind of intimacy is you know that's a remarkable thing in itself well you did a fine job of capturing that in the book and i was backwards you know um uh almost ashamed to admit i didn't know of the book before the movie so i watched the movie well see that's why i'm glad they made the movie okay yeah yeah i imagine <laughs> so <laughs> i watched the movie and then that led me to get the book and my wife actually read it first because she can sit in, uh, a day and read an entire book with me and my, I have to drag it out over a month. But it took me about two weeks, so I'm proud of myself. <laughs> but um, I did watch the book. I did read the book. And then it, it, it likened to some other works that I've read. There was a, I can't remember the author, but I read a book about the Wilmington riots, the Wilmington race riots. And the same thing took place. Uh, was an elitist that uh, wanted to create division amongst what they, at the time, the working class between blacks and whites. And I saw that taking place because you chronicled the history of uh, of the elitists in, or I hate to say elitists, but of the wealthy uh, in Durham and why they wanted to keep certain folks uh, in, in a contentious state. How, but you captured it. Now, this happened in 1971. Right. You wrote the book in 1996. I, how difficult was it to capture that for me to be able to take myself back 20, uh, I'm sorry, back to 1971? It was, it was the most difficult project I had worked on because, um, because of the racial divide, 
as a white man growing up in Iowa, um, you know, I just didn't have an understanding of of these issues. And so I was learning, which is part of the draw mm-hmm. for me. You know, this is something I wanted to learn. Um, so it, it was difficult, but at the same time, it was so gratifying because I felt like I'm a, I'm learning about some of the most important issues in this country. And today I'm even more convinced that it, it's probably the most important issue, the idea of mm-hmm. white superiority and um, the the still the oppression of black mm-hmm. people in America. Right. And, and it's always, it's still the same issue of um, the new words for it, which was fascinating because when the book, when the movie came out, I had to do a whole bunch of research mm-hmm. preparing for what I knew I'd be doing podcasts like this, right. where there's been a lot of scholarly work since I wrote the book that really explains things like white privilege, which mm-hmm. I didn't even know of as a phrase back then. Um, You're talking about growing up in Iowa or growing up, period? Growing up, period. Okay. Uh, um, The scholarship has really evolved because there are a lot more black writers, scholars, Mm -hmm. uh, writing about these things and black editors wanting to publish books on these core issues. Okay. And so it it was – it's been um, a new learning experience. Okay. Now – I'll ask you then, where does that come from? Um, I know I, I have a, a, a different awareness now than maybe I had five years ago. I, what I didn't mention is I'm a doctoral student working on um, um, how to improve uh, solving the problem of the under underrepresentation of African-American males in K-12 uh, schools. And because I've come through the experience. And so because I've had to do research on that, I've had to go as far back as um uh 18 1700s to kind of build up to why the state is the way it is today uh much like i'm educating myself you had to educate yourself now i grew up um knowing some things that maybe you weren't privy to because you didn't grow up in a black household where does the interest come who who talked to you and said osha i need you to explore who gave who sparked that for you that's another tough question there wasn't just one person Mm-hmm. who did that. I think it was something that just evolved because I was interested in the history of this country and interested in social justice issues okay. broadly. And once you start, that's the, the dangerous part about education. Once you get started on something, you just, or there's always more to learn. So you can always get deeper into it. Um, and you look around and see, oh my God, the, um, these same structures, these mm-hmm. same uh, uh, beliefs are at play, and in some cases, with uh, um, within politics, even more so in play now than mm-hmm. they had been for quite a while. But that also presents it's both a challenge and an opportunity, because there's I think there's more white people certainly um, learning that that things are not as good as they thought they had mm-hmm. been. So. Uh, the challenge then is to rise to that and do something about it. And a lot of, of people, a lot of white people I know, feel powerless because mm-hmm. they just think, oh, my God, I hadn't realized this. You know, what do we do? Well, you organize. Mm-hmm. And there are organizations out there. There are always movements that you can be part of. And I like the new awareness that points out um, the old idea that you can, if you're white, that you could be 
either a racist or not a racist. No, that's not true. You can either be racist in attitude. Mm -hmm. It's not a defining trait. It's mm -hmm. you know something that that's malleable, like CP proved. You can either be racist or you can be anti-racist. But there's no middle ground. You have to be fighting that battle in whatever way. And there are lots of ways to fight that battle. But if we engage in it, we go on a journey that helps us not just perfect our society, but perfect ourselves. Because we we all have these biases. And it's this is what uh, challenges us to uh, become better people, become really our destiny of who we are, which is based on taking on a, a healing role. And it starts with yourself. Okay. I'm going to try to squeeze in two more questions before we go to a break. But did you uh, did you receive any pushback? I imagine you would. Pushback as far as when people realize, hey, this is what you're trying to do? You're raising awareness. Was there any pushback in uh, developing the book? No. No, because okay. I had a great editor at uh, Scribner when I first came, first started writing this book, um, Hamilton Kane, who really believed in the project and just... He, he's a Southerner, and he a white Southerner, and he wanted me to, to write this story. So, no, no pushback. Okay. Uh, and as an educator, I'm, all, I'm still thinking like an educator. And uh, we started this whole podcast as a way to make things easier for a classroom teacher, for a teacher at any one of the local universities. The reason I started, I used to hate doing lesson plans. I tell this story often. I hated doing lesson plans. And I said, let's do a podcast that a teacher could supplement a lesson plan or build a lesson plan around. Uh, so although it's for the entire community, uh, educators are, are, are the, uh, the push, the, the focus, I would say. Right. So you've already taught us that, you know, any education is not always going to be an easy route. You're telling us how this took time. It took effort. Um as far as the book, not the movie, but the book, I'm talking Best of Enemies. Um, uh, what would, how can it benefit? I'm thinking of a high school class. How can this benefit a high school teacher or even a college level class to take this on as a project to discuss controversial or uh, issues that might might have challenging effects to it? Well, it certainly would be challenging, and that's, that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it shouldn't be too easy. If it's too easy, then you're probably not really getting to the heart of things. Okay. Um, but, I mean, I do know of educators who have, who have used this as a classroom book and um, either to teach just American history, mm -hmm. African-American history. You know, they're really I, – I was upset when I saw that. The book is listed in Amazon under ethnic studies, but there's no white white studies section because that's right. just studies. Mm -hmm, I mean, right. it's part of the invisibility of being white. Gotcha. You don't see it as, as a thing, mm -hmm. but it is. And this book is about whiteness largely. So I think that's one way that people use it now okay. because there's more of an awareness of what does it mean to be white? Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. No, and and uh, I'm gonna promise I'm going to break. But you know, my my wife even mentioned when she read it, she said this reads more like a text. Uh, she meant she said this has a textbook element to it. Uh, was that intentional, or is it because you document? It wasn't intentional. It was just necessary. Okay. Um, because the context was really what drove. Gotcha. What was important about this? The only way to understand Anne and CP's story 
is to know the history. Mm -hmm. And I guess just being interested in history anyway, that was a natural thing for me. Okay. All right. Well, we'll take a, uh, uh, we're definitely sitting here uh, listening to history, note, history notes, and we have our discussion with uh, Osha Gray Davidson, author of Best of Enemies, Race and Redemption in the New South. Let's insert a brief stoppage here, and we'll return uh, with Mr. Davidson. And when we come back, maybe we'll talk about how this, uh, what role he played in turning this into a movie. All right, thank you, and we'll be right back on History Notes. You are listening to History Notes, a production of the Education Department of the Greensboro History Museum. To discover and learn more about the discussion and our exhibits, visit the Greensboro History Museum, located at 130 Summit Avenue in Greensboro, or visit greensborohistory.org. That's greensborohistory.org. Now let's get back to History Notes. Welcome back to History Notes. I'm Rodney Dawson, Curator of Education at the Greensboro History Museum. Special thanks to the Greensboro Public Library and the One Book, One City Initiative. And we're here with uh, Mr. Osha Gray Davidson um, here with us today on this podcast. And we're talking about your literary work, uh, Best of Enemies. And uh, it's been turned into a movie. Uh, I saw it in, earlier in two, 2019. Of course, you wrote the the book in 19, or at least it was published in 1996. The movie comes out right. in 2019. And just as a uh, point of interest, uh, how does that happen? What does it feel like to get the call that your work <laughs> is down being? Well, it is. It isn't quite like that. Okay. There were. It was a period of many, many years mm-hmm. of different producers optioning the okay. rights to it. And then finally, Robin Bissell, who ended up making the movie, optioned the rights to the screenplay that I wrote, because I had written a screenplay for oh. this a long time ago. And over the years, he kept re-optioning it and trying to get a, a movie done, which is incredibly hard. Mm, I can uh, imagine. But uh, he came to me a few years ago and said, you know, what about instead of optioning the rights to your screenplay, I'd like to write my own screenplay for it. Would you consider optioning the rights to the book and I'll do the screenplay? And I said, sure, anything that gets the story in front of people. And by then I also trusted Robin to get it right. Um, He had done the Hunger Games. He was a producer Mm. uh, of the Hunger Games. And he and I talked on the phone about how class is such a big element in that movie, which I had never known until I went to see it one day or saw it on streaming like a year after it came out. And I called Robin immediately afterwards and said, Robin, the movie's about class. And he said, yeah. Mm. Well, nobody ever told me that. And, you know, I didn't see that in any reviews. But so we talked and I realized, okay, this guy understands that this movie is about complex issues. Okay. And that's what he's interested. So, yes, I agreed. Sure, you do your own screenplay. For those that don't know, including myself, what's the difference uh, between writing a book and then now you have to write a screenplay. Um, well, for me, I mean, I guess they're, they're completely different art forms. It's probably like, what's the difference between writing a book and painting a painting? Mm-hmm. You know, how do you convey things in a visual medium? Okay. And in something that lasts two hours, as opposed to however long it takes to read the book. And uh, so that's one of the real big differences in the screenplay is it has to compress time and it uses visual cues instead of written 
written information. Now, when someone else is doing it, is it painful? In this case, it wasn't um, okay. because it was Robin. Um, uh-huh. And I, you know, I knew that uh, there are endless stories of writers who hated the movies that were based mm-hmm. on, on their work. I'm, I'm very fortunate that this movie, um, that Robin did such a good job, that it was Robin because he brought right. his understanding to it. So, um, so. And th- there have been criticisms of the movie, but um, some of the criticisms of the movie, I-, I think, are equally criticisms of the book of, I mean, could be criticisms of the book. That it's centered. Uh, why is it centered on a white character? Mm-hmm. Movies that are about race are so often centered on a white character. Right. Well, my only response to that is in in this case, it had to be because this movie wasn't about. This movie was about whiteness, mm-hmm. and he was the one who had to make the change. He right. was. Okay. I mean, and didn't need. There wasn't a, this big character arc like they call it. For Anne to go through, uh, so to focus on Anne—that's an entirely different movie. Uh, it's mm. not—it's not to say that that would be a bad movie at all, but that's a different thing. It needed to focus on this white guy who was an absolute racist, mm-hmm. self-professed racist, knew that he was a racist and embraced that. Um, who changed to become an anti-racist? So it had to center on a white character. Gotcha. So you're you're highlighting the power of relationship. The power of your relationship with the director uh, uh, allowed you to trust him in that process. And then within the project itself, the power of the relationship between I'm talking about the movie, the power and the book, the power of the relationship between Ann Atwater and C.P. Ellis. Right. Right. And um, as I was telling Beth on the ride over here, I I didn't have anything to do with the movie as far as Mm -hmm. consulting. Um, I everything was new to me. Okay. When I when I saw the film, and I was just pleasantly surprised by it. Okay, uh, well, um, we you'll be uh, you're here in town because we uh, have the program uh, tonight at the at the uh, museum. And again, another project, uh, one city, one book, put on by the Greensboro Public Library. And you know, I'm sure um, the relationship that we have with the library made this possible. So you're you're reinforcing the fact that may, I might go back and rewrite part of my dissertation now. And Good to hear. Talk about uh, <laughs> relationships. Um, what is the main message uh, you would hope an audience to gain uh, when you were writing this book? What uh, do you feel that the message has was portrayed? How the book has been perceived was that the message you were trying to convey? Yeah, I think so. I okay. think I think it was. Um, but there's text and there's subtext, mm-hmm. and in both of these, the here I'll here's a spoiler alert. Um, the first line of the book, the first sentence of the book is in the beginning, and then comma Durham blah 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 mm-hmm. whatever. The last line of the book is it, but it was a good beginning. Mm. So what I was trying to to talk about. And help, hope that people would see is that this is a book about the the uh, battle between myth and history, how they're not the same thing. So, in the beginning is you know that's the book of Genesis. That that's the creation story mm-hmm. for a lot of people. But CP had bought into the myth of the New South, and he ran up against the history of what actually life was like for black people and for white okay. people. And so the book ends with 
with the point at the point where CP realized that he had to start all over again. He no longer accepted the creation myth mm-hmm. of white supremacy, but now he had to start learning what was real about the world. Okay. And that's what I would hope readers would do. Gotcha. Now, again, this was 1971. You It's published in 1996. And then um, we have the movie that comes out in 2019. But you went back in 96 and studied uh, race relations uh, specifically or particularly in Durham in the South. Right. And we call it the New South. But um, and Durham was considered a progressive city at the time. Um, That's part of the myth. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, you're right. It was considered. I never knew that. I never knew Durham. I knew that Durham was one of the black Wall Street towns. Uh, but I never knew that until reading the book that it was considered uh, a progressive place. It was a place, a model city. In fact, uh, who was it that visited? Uh, it's escaping my mind. Du Bois. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, W.E.B. Du Bois. W.E.B. Du Bois visited and said, this is the model city for uh, for Negroes. And um, so, but what you studied that took place back in the early 70s and looking at the world as you see it today uh, do you see where we've taken steps backwards or have you seen progression? What do you think about the state affairs that's going on today uh, and the division that we have today and, and compared to that time that you studied in the early 70s? I'd like to know your thoughts on that. Andy. I think we're at a standstill. We've been at a standstill for a long time that there hasn't been any true progress made. I mean, I hate to say it, but um, I think that's part of the myth that still goes on, and it's getting challenged more. You know, there was just this project called the 1619 Project mm-hmm. by the New York, New York Times, Times magazine, right. and it's called 1619 because that's the date that the first Africans, although they weren't necessarily enslaved at that time, it was uh, indentured. There's there's controversy over it. was formal slavery or was it? indentured servitude mm. but that's the the really that's if you're going to pick a starting point for slavery in america in the united states that's you might as well pick 1619 so it's the 400th anniversary mm-hmm. last week i think yeah of that arrival and um so there's been progress made since 1619 okay but the idea that uh durham was the center of opportunity for black people. I mean, I write about this in the book. Uh, mm-hmm. Anne Atwater thought that too when she moved from a right. small town in North Carolina to Durham and discovered, no, the streets are not paved with gold. In fact, the streets aren't paved right. where she lived. And that for um, some some black business people, things were pretty good. But for the mass of black folks living in Durham, life was terrible and hard. I don't think that's changed very much in the United States, especially when you look at relative to the rising standard of living for white people. Mm -hmm. I mean, yes, things have gone up for both groups, but the gap is still the same. And that gets to the whole issue of wealth and the fact that um, white Americans hold an enormous advantage over black Americans when it comes to wealth, not income. And for too long, we focused on income, but instead it's wealth, which is intergenerational. Mm-hmm. Um, 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 the ability intergenerationally to to rise to right. ke- and keep rising, that that has not been open for black people. And in fact, it, uh, black people have been um, oppressed to um, disadvantaged so that that couldn't happen to accumulate right. wealth. 
Now, I, <clears throat> when I've, I've had these conversations before, and uh, and I've had it with uh, white folks, and some have said you are embellishing or you're exaggerating. How do you tell this story? Uh, how do you approach this story and still have your recipients have their listening ears on and not become defensive and not push them away because you're making them feel guilty? How can you do, can you do that? I don't know. And that, that's, that's such a great question because that's the challenge for mm -hmm. me as a white person. If I'm going to consider myself an anti-racist, then how do I do that? And, uh, I know I don't want to prompt guilt because guilt is counterproductive. Right. That just leads to resistance. But there's a difference between guilt and responsibility. And I don't think white enough white people realize yet that it's in their own self-interest as a human being to fight this battle. Because who was it? Uh, there was a black scholar who I really admire, and his name is not coming to me now. Um, but Julius, Julius Lester, who, who said that um, for a white person to not see themselves in a black person means that they're not, they haven't fully um, gained their, their own humanity. And so it's a convolute, I'm mm -hmm. saying this in a convoluted way, but um, you really can't be fully human and reach your, your whole potential if you're harboring these illusions of that are, that are bigotry. Right. And if your rise is based on keeping somebody else down. So it's a difficult process. I'm still exploring that because mm -hmm. th that is the area that I want to move into, not just retelling history, but the challenge is now, how do you, how do we change this in mm -hmm. America? How do I work um, with black people who are doing work like this with Sandy Darity, for one, at Duke, mm -hmm. who is one of the, I, I think he's the foremost um, scholar on reparations, the reparations movement, which talks about possible ways of overcoming this kind of this enormous wealth gap that still makes America be two separate countries. All right. Okay. Well, um, I'm not going to keep you here long because I know you need to get some rest uh, and prepare for <laughs> tonight. But I do want to ask this question. I'm fascinated with your work. Uh, I'm going to go back and find the Rolling Stones article. Say her last name so I don't butcher it, please. Piestua. Piestua. And I remember her uh, along with Jessica Lynch, and there was a few others. Right. Uh, I was in the first Persian Gulf War, so this was in 2003. But I remember that story because when it happened to them, I said, I wonder, could that have happened to me? Because I worked in supply. As along with uh, Jessica yeah. and uh, Paestawa. Uh, but I, but you're in definitely in tune with the environment. You're in tune. You're politic politically conscious. I want to ask you about your thoughts on the on the uh, Democratic prior primary. Uh, unless you want to get uh -oh. it. <laughs> <laughs> do you think we... Well, let me ask you this. Do you, do you think politically we're addressing what we need to address, considering the, your knowledge base when it comes to race relations? You know, only slightly. Mm -hmm. um, I don't have, have huge hope, but, you know, to give up hope entirely is, is you know, might as well just get, well, that is giving up. And mm -hmm. that's not an option. That's not allowable by, by uh, human standards of decency, I think. So I, I hope that people will. But, uh, I mean, 
for the first time, there's been solid backing for reparations, mm-hmm. which I find encouraging. Okay. But I don't know that that's really just a, a, a tactic. I mean, you know, I, I may be a bit cynical, mm-hmm. but I think I've earned the right to be, right. <laughs> to be cynical about about progress. And I think people need to demand more from elected officials. Okay. All right. Well, you must have some amazing parents, I'm telling you. Because uh, you grew up in a state where you left New Jersey, but you grew up in a state hour that's what, 80, 90 percent? Ninety-something percent white at the time. But yet you have a a broadening perspective, and uh, it's much appreciated. Oh, I appreciate that. Um, So what's next? Uh, Next is I'm going to be doing a podcast. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to be competing. Um, A podcast, um, I really can't say anything more about it right now, but it it explores these same kind of issues, but in uh, different media, different format, and uh, hopefully in a way that that energizes people to do something and tell stories that people haven't heard. All right. Well, we'll be on the lookout for that. And we thank you for doing this podcast. Thank you very much. Yeah. It's an honor to be here. Oh, it's an honor to be here. If people want to find your book, will we go to Amazon.com? Sure. Any other? Lo- I, I would favor local booksellers if you can okay. find them. But okay. Go to your local yeah. bookstore. Uh, we like that, too. Uh, and not just on a particular day when it's small business or local business day. Just try to frequent those places most of the time, yeah. I would say. But thank you for joining us on History Notes. A special thank you to our guest, Mr. Osha Gray-Davidson. And thank you to the Greensboro Public Library and the One City, One Book program. And thank you to uh, Beth Shellfield for making this happen. You can uh, check out today's podcast at greensborohistory.org. Select Discover and Learn at the top and then choose Podcast. It's available on demand. Uh, Check us out at the museum when you can. Uh, We're closed on Mondays, but Tuesday through Saturday, we're open 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. and 2 to 5 p.m. on Sunday. Join us again for the next edition of History Notes. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to History Notes, a podcast from the Education Department of the Greensboro History Museum. The Education Department offers several resources for learners both in and out of the classroom. Learn more at greensborohistory.org. Then select the Discover and Learn tab at the top of the homepage. You may schedule a tour, a field trip, or reserve an education trunk for your next lesson. Daily visitors can stop by the museum at 130 Summit Avenue in Greensboro. Admission is free. You've been listening to History Notes, where we are making history by talking history. Tune in next month for a new topic, new discussion, and new insight. This has been History Notes.